0: Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. A few days ago, the Federal Reserve launched their new payment system, FedNow. FedNow. What does it mean? What happens next? Will they make you eat the bugs? FedNow is an instant payment system run by the Federal Reserve that collects information and can veto transactions, leading many to compare it to a CBDC. Coin Bureau put out a great YouTube video the other day calling FedNow a, quote, Trojan horse. For a CBDC. The key difference being FedNow is only between banks, so it's only bank money, while a CBDC would also cover cash, so there would be no escape unless you stop using the dollar. The Fed's excuse for FedNow is that our current payment system is garbage. It takes days to move money, and you can't use it on nights or weekends, which is very 19th century of them. Economist George Selgin suggested this almost appears intentional that they were running payments on horse and buggies, perhaps so they could justify this kind of centralization. So they could have just kept payments open on nights and weekends and called it a day. Of course, they did not do this, since every government failure is an opportunity for yet more control. So FedNow has been in the works for almost a decade, starting with the 2015 Faster Payments Task Force, made up of major banks, payment processors, and retailers like Walmart. In 2019, they announced the actual FedNow project, which is coincidentally... Right around the time, the World Economic Forum announced its 2030 project to force global socialism on humanity, championed by a key player in FedNow, Leo Brainerd. FedNow development continued during the pandemic, with Brainerd herself announcing the features in a webinar near instant payments, reporting those payments to the government, and the ability to limit or blacklist both accounts and individuals using Brainerd promised machine learning. I've mentioned recently the Fed's obsession with so-called friction tech to lock you into a failing bank. And the federal government has long sought a way to make universal basic income easy since they want to buy votes and permanent parasites do, in fact, vote. Fed now would be a big step to centralizing such control of money. So what happens next in the near term? Expect a sharpening of the federal government's ability to surveil transactions, to harass people they don't like. In both cases, a level up from the surveillance state we already have in today's banking system. The one Justin Trudeau used against his people as for freezing you into a bank or universal basic income both await crises that our ruling clowns obligingly deliver like clockwork. Future bank failures will surface the friction talk, while any jump in unemployment will be the bat signal for the professional activists and media and non-government organizations, which are government funded, to get working on that universal basic income. Governments have spent 50 years building a surveillance panopticon into our financial system using tax avoidance and terror as the go-to excuse, and despite the Fourth Amendment clearly forbidding such dragnet surveillance absent probable cause of a very specific crime, none of this stuff is popular among voters— CBDCs, for example, regularly score about 80 percent opposition, but they are obviously incredibly popular for governments seeking control. We could see a revival of the Fourth Amendment in America, but if not, the only way to stop these things is for voters to demand politicians stop it and for elections to be clean enough that politicians actually listen. More than 650,000 American workers are threatening to go on strike this summer or have already done so. Bloomberg calls it an avalanche of work stoppages not seen in decades. Now, many of us have been enjoying the combined actors and writer strikes in Hollywood, but now unions in trucking, automakers, and even UPS delivery drivers are threatening to strike. UPS has just a week to cut a deal while one Bank of America analyst put 90% odds on a strike by the United Auto Workers that would hit the big three carmakers, Ford, Chrysler, and GM. Indeed, the UAW president said he is, quote, going to war with Detroit. One labor historian called it the biggest moment of striking since the 1970s. What's happening here is that like the 1970s, high inflation means many union contracts are obsolete. They were negotiated back when inflation was low. In fact, inflation is up 16% in Biden's two and a half years. So not only are they looking for catch up, they're looking for payback for taking one for the team. In fact, this unrest is happening worldwide. France has been rocked all summer by union riots over rising cost of living and pension reform, to which they added migrant riots last month. The UK lost the most working days to strikes in 30 years, 4 million, which is about 10 to 20 times normal. The problem is that unions are pushing for payback even as companies are running into slower sales. For example, UPS delivery demand is actually falling as the economy slows and pandemic demand fades. Carmakers are still working through pent-up demand from the supply chain shortage, but when that's done, they too will be staring into the abyss of a recession. It doesn't help that car makers have wasted billions on electric vehicle production that it turns out customers don't want. Put it together, and both sides are back up against the wall. If unions don't demand more, their members rebel— But if companies give more, they could go under as happened to thousands of manufacturers killed off by union demands and replaced by China. Meanwhile, of course, automation and AI are lurking on the horizon. Many jobs, after all, can be replaced by machines, but aren't because it's too expensive. But if unions push wages high enough, they will be replaced. Traditionally, this was a bigger issue in manufacturing since assembly lines are easier to automate or to send to China. But with machine learning, it's increasingly possible for a lot of service jobs as well mcdonald's for example has already automated order taking and some kitchen tasks amazon warehouses are full of autonomous robots 100,000 and rising scooting bins around and picking items that humans used to do the problem is that once you go by the robots you don't go back for example it used to take amazon up to 75 minutes to fill an order manually but with robots helping it takes 15 minutes While warehouses with robots can hold 50% more stuff, the robots don't need much space. So if unions do win big concessions, it could be Pyrrhic. This time, it's not China who gets the jobs, it's the robots. Like the 1970s, this inflation is setting off a swinging pendulum, more like a swinging wrecking ball. We'll be suffering the consequences for years to come. Bloomberg wrote an article that the soft landing the Fed is trying to engineer may mean, quote, tolerating higher inflation for years to come. Will we be dumpster diving for school supplies come September? They kicked off with the expected Fed hike, because which the Fed has signals could be the last one for now as they wait and see how much damage their previous hikes have done. I mentioned in earlier videos, how rate hikes typically take about 18 months to play out, and we're only about 10 months into this cycle. So we have not even seen what is coming. So why is the Fed still hiking? Because they're deathly afraid of inflation, getting voters angry enough that politicians rein in the Fed's ability to manipulate the economy into permanent inflation and periodic banking crises, like a gasoline thief siphoning off his neighbors every night. The key is don't steal too much. And the Fed is happy to crush the real economy to hide this siphoning, to lull voters back to sleep, back to a resigned acceptance of the two or three percent inflation they normally steal per year, about a trillion dollars, by the way. The problem for the Fed is that its hikes so far have not kicked off a full-blown recession, rather a, quote, rolling recession, with some parts of the economy hitting 2008 levels, startups, commercial real estate, or of course, regional banks, even as other parts of the economy continue humming along from accumulated pandemic savings and pent-up demand in housing cars and even vacations as humanity is released from the three-years COVID cage. The Fed is particularly worried about paychecks not going down, which they would very much like to see. The reason this all scares the Fed is that without a full-blown recession, they're afraid household spending will not shrink enough to counteract the trillions that the federal government printed during COVID, which means inflation won't come down, meaning the Fed's choice is either keep hiking to finally crush the economy or let it ride and pray the existing hikes do the trick. However, a chorus of analysts are now arguing the existing rates will not do the trick because progress in headline inflation so far has been surface level, unwinding choke supply chains, falling energy prices amid global recession, including China. Meanwhile, underlying core inflation has barely moved. The Fed's favorite inflation gauge, core PCE, rose at an annual 4.6% in the latest numbers, which is down just half a percent From the peak of core pce last year in other words from the outside it looks like progress but underlying inflation has barely budged it is frustrating watching the fed trying to treat a government spending headache by choosing which leg to cut off but of course that's the nature of central banking it's not about responsible custodianship of the economy it's about stealing as much inflation as possible without the victims getting upset And then scapegoating away the bank crises and recessions that come along for the ride. We may yet muddle through this if the American people can produce faster than the bastards can destroy. But at this point, even the Fed knows the happy talk about progress is a lie and the pain will continue. Yet another major community bank tapped out even after Janet Yellen clearly told us the banking system remained safe and remained sound as California's third largest bank, PacWest, agreed to be gobbled up by another regional for less than its market price. This is rare in mergers. It basically means it's a rescue. PacWest had similar issues to Silicon Valley Bank back in March. Too many loans to risky tech ventures, along with falling bonds, courtesy of Jerome Powell. And PacWest had been on the hospice list ever since March. They'd already lost almost a fifth of their deposits in the first six months of this year, including a 10% deposit drain in a single week in May, as customers worried about their money. Now, PacWest first, tried to reassure depositors by unloading assets at fire sale prices. So they sold off a $2.6 billion property loan portfolio, then unloaded $3.5 billion in specialty finance loans. They sold their entire real estate lending unit, which is usually a mainstay for regional banks who dominate local real estate since the major banks have no idea how property works in Tulsa or, in this case, Los Angeles. But even that was not enough as customers kept fleeing. Because while PacWest was busy patching the holes in the boat. Depositors kept cashing out into money markets that pay 5% instead of the 1% or lower that banks pay. This meant PacWest was on a treadmill that goes faster than they could run, faster than they could unload assets. I've done a couple of videos on bank consolidation, how the mega banks are gobbling up the community banks. In fact, PacWest itself was a roll up of 31 tiny banks from California, Colorado, and North Carolina, and that apparently was not enough. Accelerating into the recession, I think we're going to see more of these regional mergers as smaller banks cling together to keep from swirling down the drain. Still, I don't think it will work because small banks are in an impossible spot. They have to do two things at the same time that are in direct opposition. On the one hand, they have to rein in the risky lending so their depositors don't run away to the too-big-to-fail banks that enjoy gold-plated bailout guarantees from Janet Yellen and Jerome Powell, but at the same time, they also have to offer depositors enough interest to keep them from withdrawing to money markets that pay five times more, again, courtesy of Jerome Powell's interest rate hikes. In finance, it is basically impossible to simultaneously reduce risk and raise return, meaning that they are digging the hole. They're just digging it differently. It's activity. It's not progress. So now we will see this play out in real time with this new merger. The new acquiring bank has already promised to sell off 13 billion in assets. That's over a third of the combined bank. So it starts to look almost like a liquidation. At that point, we will see, whether this was an actual rescue or whether it was a drowning man pulling his rescuer down with him. In an embarrassing sign of America's manufacturing decline, the world's largest chipmaker, Taiwan Semiconductor, announced a new $40 billion Arizona factory three years in the making and painstakingly negotiated, would miss its deadline because they can't find enough qualified engineers. They finally gave up and are now bringing 500 engineers from Taiwan to get it up and running. So why doesn't America have enough engineers? After all, we're much richer than Taiwan. We spend roughly three times more on education. Easy. Our education system has been captured by left-wing socialists converted from a skills factory to an indoctrination factory. Instead of math or even reading, they teach whatever bullet points the revolution needs this school year. The result is not just creeping socialism from brainwashed voters, but an increasingly third world workforce that has to import high-end assistance from poor countries. This gap is growing fast. At the Taiwanese university I used to teach at, a majority of the 20,000 students were in STEM. In fact, nationwide, almost 30% of Taiwanese university degrees are in engineering alone. In the U.S., it's 6%, many of them foreign students. And it's not just lobotomizing our college students. Our system fails on the most basic level, contributing to generational poverty. Last month, I mentioned that Baltimore schools reported 93% of students were not proficient in math. Fully 23 schools had precisely zero students who could do math. and Another 20 schools had a single student who could do math. In Detroit, it's even worse, with 96% lacking proficiency in math. In fact, 95% are not even proficient in reading. Keep in mind, these are these school's own numbers. And note, they do this with plenty of money. So Baltimore spends $21,000 per student to fail to educate them, 30% more in the rest of America. Even Detroit spends over $15,000 per student, which is within 3% of the nationwide average. In both cases, incidentally, they spend about three to four times more than Taiwan spends to actually educate children. This failure combines with our government's war on manufacturing, ranging from environmental and labor mandates to social justice policing. A study by the National Association of Manufacturers found environmental regulation alone costs over $13,500 per manufacturing employee, while other regulations brings that up to $25,000 per worker in regulatory costs, nearly doubling the cost of the worker. In some industries, it is downright comical. Two years ago, the Army's Transportation Command testified in Congress that U.S.-built ships cost 26 times more than ships made in China. Only a fraction of that is wages. It should be about 30% cheaper in China, not 26 times cheaper. The rest is regulation mandates and a quasi-literate workforce. American manufacturing has been in decline since the 1970s, to the point today we have between 30 and 40 percent fewer workers than countries like Germany, Austria, or Japan. Until we return education to hard skills and end the regulatory war on manufacturing, is an absolute pipe dream that America stands any chance of catching up to Asia. Instead, we will fall further behind, relegated to third world assembly with a third world workforce. And if we can fix these things, manufacturing could again provide a decent living, as it does in Japan, enough to support a family and a middle-class lifestyle while revitalizing the, quote, rust belt our elite has written off. Billionaire ChatGPT GPT co-founder Sam Altman wants to scan your eyeball to build a global database of all humans. What could go wrong? Now, you might ask why Sam, a co-founder of one of the world's most successful tech companies, is screwing around with totalitarian crypto tokens. But then he has long been interested in left-wing causes, including years pushing a universal basic income... That would bribe millions of voters out of work and onto the couch where they can become permanent parasites, well, permanent until their voting kills the economy and they have to go scavenge trash dumps with the rest of us. Meanwhile, of course, ChatGPT's hoovering up and training on all the information in the world is arguably just as scary as a global eyeball panopticon. So what is WorldCoin, why does it matter, and what comes next? George Gammon put out a tweet recently summing up WorldCoin as a quote, combination global digital ID, cryptocurrency, AI, and UBI. Adding it is literally not possible to create something that sounds worse and comparing it to a private sector CBDC, which sounds about right. The idea is that all humans would have a unique verified digital ID, which they could use to buy stuff. Perhaps they would need to use it to buy stuff at some point. They could also use it to prove they are not AIs. AIs don't have eyeballs, you see. And he promises WorldCoin would slot us all into a global UBI that offers no escape from being sorted into parasite and livestock. So far, several million people have signed up, mostly in third world countries, in return for 25 world coins worth about $2 each and likely to plunge. Apparently, they only get a quarter of that in third world countries since eyeballs are cheap in Indonesia. So you walk in, you put your eye on a big shiny orb that steals your soul, uh, captures your unique eyeball print. From that day forward, you are part of the solution, like it or not. WorldCoin is rolling out 35 orbs around the world with more to come. Don't worry, though. They promise total privacy in this Eye of Sauron, which is hilarious, given it will take about 8.5 seconds for governments to demand access to a verified biometric identifier of all of their citizens tax evasion, terrorism, pronoun abuse, pick one. What would governments do with that information? WorldCoin helpfully lays it out in a graphic. Control over social media use, telephone use, healthcare and financial access, travel and mobility, so a digital Berlin wall, even food and sustainability, everybody's favorite eating of the green bugs. Bottom line, crypto tokens are kind of dead at this point, and I can't imagine this will go anywhere unless he can get a government to mandate it. Still, World Coin is just one of a number of pushes to pervert crypto into a totalitarian tool, joining Unicoin, the IMF adjacent crypto token, and of course, dozens of national CBDCs. It is one thing for billionaires to waste money on quirky hobbies, but it would be nice if they were not building a totalitarian. Crypto. Panopticon. Just as the original internet was a tool of liberation that was then turned into Big Brother's favorite henchmen, it would be a tragedy if the decentralization of blockchains, too, were turned into a totalitarian tool. The University of Michigan came out with some concerning data last week suggesting the rich are getting richer and the rest of America is getting poorer at an accelerating pace. Michigan's consumer sentiment survey is one of the gold standards in economic statistics, and the most recent number showed sentiment is bifurcating By income level, the top third is soaring, spending like there's no tomorrow, while the bottom third is falling, counting pennies and clipping coupons. This is odd. Historically, consumer sentiment moves together, all boats rising and falling more or less at the same pace. But not so at the moment. The rich are now doing better and better. The poor are doing worse and worse. So what is happening? And the answer is simple. The Fed. The way the Fed channels money into the economy targets asset prices first, While federal spending slides hundreds of billions to crony businesses, from banks to green boondoggles to now cluster munitions. I mentioned Cantillon Effects the other day, how money creation redistributes wealth to the rich because the money goes first into asset markets, then the money trickles down layer by layer, each layer losing a permanent chunk of wealth. In the kind of inflation we've been seeing, by the time it gets to workers, it transferred about 8% of wealth. By the time it gets to the elderly living on on Social Security, it lost even more, unless those pensions were fixed, of course, in which case they get nothing. To illustrate, according to the Fed's own numbers, over half of stocks are held by the top 1% of Americans, while the bottom 90% of Americans own just 11% of stocks. The bottom 50% of Americans, instantly own just 0.6%. That means for every $100 the Fed pumps into assets, 53 go to the top 1%, 89 go to the top 10%, and just 60 cents goes to the bottom half. And suddenly, this is getting much worse. A generation ago, the bottom 90% owned about twice as much, about 22%, while the bottom 50% owned about two and a half times as much. Of course, that was all before the Fed went on its money printing rampages after the 2001.com crash, then the 2008 financial crisis, and then, of course, the COVID lockdowns. Together, these dropped the share of stocks held by the non-rich by over half. In fact, they kneecapped the non-rich across the board including bank accounts, housing, and pensions. With the total share of wealth held by the bottom 90% dropping from 40% in 1990 to just 31% today, and falling. We saw this wealth transfer in dramatic form during the COVID lockdowns with 9 trillion in central bank spending driving a 5 trillion dollar rise in the wealth of the world's billionaires alone. And this year has been a level up in the wealth vortex as the bank bailouts sent money directly into the accounts of rich depositors and the banks themselves. In short, the rich get taken care of, the rest of us get higher prices. So will it change? Unfortunately, like so much in government, the beneficiaries are powerful and the victims are not. Bankers love it, corporations love it, the rich love it, and their senators on speed dial truly love it. While normal people have media to explain how it's all for the greater good, how without trillion dollar handouts to rich people, society would collapse. So no, until something major breaks, it won't change. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox, and visit com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.